Our key passage, if you would please turn there, uh, first book of the Bible, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 9, please turn with me to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 9, let me say a few other quick things if I could, I don't think I mentioned earlier, if you are in the care group that I lead and I have not yet been able to give you a little booklet for our new little informal study Would you please see me after the service? Would you do that? That would help me a lot. Again, if you're in the group that I lead and I've not yet been able to give you a little booklet, we want to do in care groups together. If you'd like more information about those, just ask us. We meet typically once a month on the third Sunday of the month to encourage one another. I will also say, since we've been referencing VBS a couple of times and since Aaron did, I I wondered, should we forego the normal sermon and have David Benton come up and do an extended version of what he did during VBS, which was so delightful uh, and so funny. But it seemed wise not to have a 30-minute joke time, um, but that was really good. It was good stuff. So grateful to all who, again, who really poured out their week and many, many weeks and hours of preparation Leading up to that, fantastic. But we need to pray that the Lord would water the seed that was sown. All right. I want to take as the title of the sermon this morning something that is for sure very important. It's a major theme of my sermon. I also want to say before I give you the title, it's not the only thing that I want this sermon to be about. Nevertheless, here's the title The Bible and Capital Punishment. The Bible and Capital Punishment. So it's not the only thing. I love the opportunity that we have every week. The main thing that we do every week is to focus on the text, God, Jesus, and the gospel. That's once again the same focus. The text, God, Jesus, and the gospel. And yes, we will focus on the Bible and capital punishment. If you would like to have a a series uh, to attach this to, if you need that, you could call this either a standalone message. Obviously, it's not part of our Hebrew series. So if you need that, you could call it a standalone message or continuously ongoing, what we always do, sermons on doctrine and ethics. That's just kind of always happening. Uh, so sermons on doctrine and ethics. All right. So let's, uh, let's pray. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, come and help us now, we pray. And again, we pray, even going back to the first hymn that we were singing together, Lord, uh, wake us up, help us. We confess even now, Lord, that you are God and we are not. We are, if we are believers, then we are saints through Jesus Christ, but we continue to sin daily. We pray that you would wake us up, as the hymn says, wake us up from our lethargy, help us in our love of comfort, Lord, we know that on one hand, you have given us many good things in this life and in this world to enjoy. And it would be wrong if we did not enjoy things like ice cream. 
and some degree of comfort that we are able to have for ourselves. But Lord, help us to remember the lost and dying world, and may we rejoice in the salvation that is only through Jesus Christ, and may the joy that we have in Jesus overflow, that we would share the gospel and the good news with others. Lord, help us this morning through the Holy Spirit. Please come and give help through the Spirit, through the enlightening of Your Word. Lord, just help us. Just help us physically. We may just be weak. We may just be tired. We may be sleepy. So Lord, help us through Your Spirit. Help us not only in what we may think of our dynamic ways, but also in very ordinary ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 9. Look there with me. Pay close attention. Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Genesis chapter 9, verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. We're reading through verse 17. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Genesis chapter 9, verse 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We at uh, Crossway Church do not teach uh, what is called quiverful theology. 
We do not teach quiverful theology. And you may say, well, what is that? What is quiverful theology if you're saying we do not teach that? It's been described like this. Here's, how, here's one definition of quiverful. It's the idea that truly godly families will trust the Lord with their family planning. Children are viewed as unmitigated blessings, and as such, the couple is willing to have as many children as the Lord chooses to bless them with. Artificial or chemical birth control are definitely no-nos in this view called quiverful. Natural birth control, such as natural family planning, is also out. Not good, according to this view. All methods of conception control are considered a lack of trust in God to provide for the children of the righteous. Now that's the proper definition of quiverful. Let me give you just for a quick moment some things that typically go with it. Maybe not always, but some things that typically, some values that for families that do embrace quiverful. And by the way, stay with me this morning. Stay with me. Uh, I want to come back to this as I wrap this up in a minute. And I, I plan to offend everyone this morning, all right? So stay with me. You'll, everybody will get their turn, all right? What are some basic family values that typically, maybe not always, but typically go with quiverful families? Here they are, very quickly. Patriarchy. Courtship or betrothal instead of dating. No dating, courtship or betrothal. Sheltering of children. Biblical manhood and womanhood being debt-free and independent of government programs or subsidies, home church or family-integrated church, and then modesty. Oh, and by the way, if I'm able to define those seven pillars right there, then with most of them, I have zero problem. That's always the thing, right, if I'm able to define, right? Uh, But if I can define those the way that I think the Bible teaches those, with most of those, by the way, I have zero problem. The proper definition of quiverful, again, just to keep it very basic in your mind, is trusting the Lord with your family planning and doing nothing that would interfere in any way with trusting the Lord. As I say, we want to come back to that. Why are we talking this morning about capital punishment? That's going to be point number one. Let me give you my three points. Let me tell you where we're going. This is where we're going this morning, okay? Number one, capital punishment. Number two, Genesis chapter 9. Not just one or two verses, but the whole context. Number one, capital punishment. Number two, Genesis chapter 9, 1 through 17. Number three, from Genesis chapter 9 to the New Testament and Jesus and the gospel. Why are we talking about capital punishment this morning? Isn't that, uh, isn't that mainly a political issue? Well, it's a political issue, but as I was talking to a brother the other day and talking about certain things that are hot-button issues in the church, uh, as I was discussing what I felt like were hot-button issues, not only hot-button issues, but very important issues that unfortunately even divide Christians and churches. Uh, things like CRT, things like gender and things like LGBTQ+. These, listen to me, these are not merely political issues. Why are you as a church so hung up on political issues? No, no, these are Bible issues. These are Bible issues. And so again, my purpose actually, trust me, is to say, let's do what we do every Sunday. Let's talk about God. Let's talk about the text. 
the text of Scripture. Let's talk about Jesus and the Gospel. And today we happen to be talking about the issue of capital punishment. So look with me at Genesis chapter 9. Point number 1 is this. Point number 1. Let us pay attention, not first to our feelings, but to the Word of the Lord. Point number 1. Let us pay attention, not first to our feelings, but first to the Word of God. Notice Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Notice it's interesting, right? Uh, whoever sheds, and then that little couplet, which is the first two lines of verse 6, ends with the word shed. If you just take the two lines, take out the third line for just right now, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood, and then also in the middle of the second line, by man shall his blood. Whoever sheds the blood of man, and he's just kind of reversing it, right? Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. It's the beautiful Bible. It's the Scripture. It's, it's poetic. It's imagery. It's true. It's dealing with capital punishments. There are uh, some fascinating things. I want you to listen to this. In America, the first documented instance, I'm reading here from John J. Davis, the first documented instance of capital punishment occurred in the colony of Virginia in 1622. In 1622, in the colony of Virginia, Daniel Frank was hanged for stealing a calf and other chattels from Sir George Yardley. In 1630, in Plymouth, Massachusetts, John Billington became the first person in the colonies to be hanged for murder. During the Revolutionary period, most of the colonies considered these things to be worthy of capital. Now, you know what I'm talking about when I capital punishment. Execution, the death penalty, right? Capital punishment, the death penalty. During the Revolutionary period, most of the colonies considered murder, treason, piracy, arr, arson, rape, robbery, burglary, and sodomy to be capital crimes. Hanging was the usual form of execution. Well, let's go to the 20th century. Let's go to the 20th century. During the 20th century, the greatest, greatest number of executions in the United States occurred between 1930 and 1949. During 1930 and 1949, an average of 148 persons were executed each year. By 1967, however, the use of the death penalty came to a halt. Gary Gilmore's death in 1977 before a Utah firing squad, 1977, Utah firing squad, ended a 10-year unofficial moratorium on capital punishment in the United States. One more, for now at least, one more. Let's go across the pond to England. In 1814, three English boys aged 8 to 11 were executed for stealing a pair of shoes. In 1833, a boy aged 9 
was hanged for stealing a set of children's paints from a shop in London. Excesses, excesses such as these, tended to promote sympathy for movements toward the abolition of the death penalty in modern English history. And by the way, in case you're worried, yes, I would agree, those are excesses. I think the scripture would as well. We've noticed, look again at Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. I showed you that nice couplet there, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. But then we have to go back to verse 5. We have to go back to verse 5, which says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. Just stop for a moment. Where are we? Where are we in the story of the Bible? As we come here to Genesis chapter 9 and we just started reading just the beginning of verse 5, where are we? Well, do you know what Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 is? You know what those four chapters are? It's Noah and the flood. Noah and the ark and the flood. Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. This is the climax. This is the, this is the peace after the judgment. This is God's covenant with Noah. That's a very important word, dear friends. All throughout the Bible, from this point forward, God deals with man by means of his covenants. Oh, and by the way, marriage is a covenant. It's not just a contract. It's a covenant. But this is God's covenant with Noah. And this is like a new beginning. Noah is like a new Adam. It's like, in one sense, a new creation. The whole world has been wiped clean because of sin and rebellion. The waters sprang up from below and came down from above, and it was purged. It was purged, and now it's like a new creation. So what's he going to say in the new creation? Well, he's what he's going to do is he's going to establish the beginning forms of human government. He's going to establish the beginning forms of human government, and he's going to talk about the death penalty. And for your lifeblood, verse 5, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Why are we looking at Genesis chapter 9? Isn't this the Old Testament? Yes, it is. If we're going to talk about something as, as important as capital punishment, we also ultimately want to see it, see its relation to the New Testament and to Jesus and the gospel. Can we talk about it maybe from a New Testament? Yes, we can. Isn't this the law? And aren't we as Christians no longer under the law of Moses? You're right. You're right. Christians are not under the law of Moses. Hebrews chapter 8. Jesus Christ brings a new and better covenant. So isn't Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, isn't this not only the Old Testament, but isn't this kind of like the law? No. Christians are not under the law of Moses. This is not the law of Moses. By the way, when I say we're not under the law of Moses, that gives us no license to ignore the law of Moses. It is the Word of God. This is not the law of Moses. It comes before the Old Covenant. Listen to me. 
This comes before the Old Covenant by many centuries. This is for all people at all times. For all people at all times. Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6 is universally, we might say, universally applicable. Now there's another verse we need to think about, and it's the Sixth Commandment. Do you know the Ten Commandments? Need to know the Ten Commandments. Do you know what the Sixth Commandment is? You can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 5. You can find it in Exodus chapter 20. We need to think about this for just a minute. The Sixth Commandment is what? It's often translated, you shall not kill. The better translation is, you shall not murder. We need to think about that. The Ten Commandments. And the sixth is, you shall not murder. What does that mean? Think about this with me. Think about this. We have Seymour Johnson folks here this morning. As always, we love you. We pray for you. Lord, help our dear folks. We have Seymour Johnson in Wayne County. When the Ten Commandments say you shall not murder, that word for murder there is never used in the Old Testament about war. You hear what I'm saying? That word for murder is not the word used for war. When it says you shall not murder, what does that mean? Well, think about the opposite. I think it's helpful sometimes to say what does something mean by defining it by the opposite. You shall not murder. The opposite is... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Opposite, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does you shall not murder mean? I keep saying this. It means what we typically think of as murder, which is unlawful, immoral, intentional taking of a human life. It also means, the sixth commandment also means accidental murder. The sixth commandment also means accidental murder, unintentional, careless, through carelessness. Oh, by the way, maybe you're thinking as some have said, hey, the Ten Commandments say you shall not murder. Therefore, no death penalty, no capital punishment. No. No. The, no, the, the, the sixth commandment says you shall not kill in ways that are not authorized by God. You hear me? You hear what I'm saying? The sixth commandment says, you shall not kill in any way that is not authorized by God. But Genesis 9 comes first. Not to mention that God does not speak out of both sides of His mouth. Because if we do look at the law, I just gave you those American examples, right? The English boys on the other side of the pond, so young. And they were, they were uh, executed and then people are like, whoa, what are we doing here? This is excessive. Yeah, that's, that's right. And then these examples in America, sodomy and rape and blasphemy and all of these things. But let's go to the Bible first. Just listen to this. Listen to the Old Testament. The Bible warrants capital punishment for a great many crimes. This is not America in the revolutionary period. This is, this is the Old Testament Reasons for capital punishment. Murder, adultery, incest, bestiality, sodomy, rape, false witness in capital crimes, kidnapping, this is from John Frame, fornication by a priest's daughter, witchcraft, human sacrifice, 
striking or cursing father or mother, incorrigible juvenile delinquents, blasphemy, Sabbath desecration, false prophecy, sacrifice to false gods, contempt for the priest or the judge. All of those things that I just read were reasons for the death penalty in the Old Testament. John Frame says this, listen, clearly then the language of the sixth commandment cannot be taken in a way that excludes capital punishment. Oh, the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. Therefore, no capital punishment. You've misinterpreted the Bible. You've misinterpreted the Bible. It rather forbids killing that is not authorized by God. And the list that I just read indicates that some killings in the Old Covenant, God did authorize. By the way, it was a, right. we are not in a theocracy, which means we are not we're not in some ways at all like ancient Israel. Ancient Israel had a, had a special relationship with the Lord, as Frame says, the special holiness of Israel, blasphemy, witchcraft, false religious practices. You're dead. You're dead. What we're talking about today primarily, to be clear, we're talking today primarily about unlawful, immoral, verifiable, not personal vengeance, not personal vengeance by human government, intentional homicide. Dear friends, stay with me. This is about God and the text and Jesus and the gospel. So that's point number one. Let's pay attention, not first to our feelings, but to the word of the Lord. And somebody would have to, in my, in my opinion, somebody would have to explain away the clear teaching of Genesis 9, 5, and 6, which is not part of the Mosaic law, but rather is part of, is, part, is very close to creation. It's new creation after the flood. But this is applicable to all people at all times. Why does God care so much about this? What is this about? Is this about vengeance? God clearly in the Old Testament and the New Testament says no personal vengeance. This is the beginning of human government and the reason, the reason is not even, the reason for capital punishment is not, first of all, to act as a deterrent. We're going to kill this man who murdered somebody to teach everybody else a lesson. That should happen, but the first reason, listen to me, is because of God. Because God is holy and because of the justice of God. And because this is not just what the, the Bible says, this is what God says. This is what God says. So now let's very quickly look at this in context. Let's look at this in context. Look with me again at verse 5. Number 2, Genesis chapter 9. This is the second heading Look at this quickly with me. The second heading this morning, Genesis chapter 9. Beyond just these verses. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now keep reading. And you, 
Who's you? Don't answer, but do you know who Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives? And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Let's pay attention to the message of this text. I said earlier that Crossway Church does not teach a quiverful theology. That is probably not the main worry, however, in the church today. The, the bigger concern might just be, do we understand that not only in Genesis 9-7, but going right back to Genesis chapter 1, the first command, the first command given to the human beings is to be fruitful and multiply. Do you hear what I'm saying? So we have, some, we have a couple of problems. One problem is, and again, I know this. what I'm about to say is, is it doesn't sound directly biblical, but it's just a problem. As I was listening to the briefing the other day, one problem that we have is a major problem in the world is declining birth rates. You know, you've heard before, you've got to have a 2.1 birth rate just to maintain. Just to maintain the people that you already have, you've got to have a 2.1 birth rate. And years ago, I read a book called America Alone, which was saying of all the developed countries, America alone had a birth rate that was at least sustainable. But now the problem is actually, and you don't have to be a Christian to talk about this, the problem's pretty dire. You have to have a 2.1 birth rate just to sustain. Most of the world is way below that, including uh, undeveloped countries. So that's one problem that we have is the, the, the rapidly declining birth rate. When God has said, as the first command, be fruitful and multiply. Another problem would be in the church, in the church, if you lean towards one or other of these views, if in your conscience as a family or as the man who is to be head of the family, if you lean towards the view of quiverful or if you lean more towards the other side, Another problem would be in the church that we not judge one another. That you hold your view, listen to me, with a clear conscience. Let your conscience be informed by the Word of God. And let us be charitable to one another. And that is a, that's a, also a big potential problem. That whatever view we hold, hold it with a clear conscience. Make sure that it's according to the Bible. And do not judge one another. This is the first commandment that is given is to be fruitful and multiply. So I wrote something down to share with you. Let me read it for a second. We do not teach quiverful theology. Why am I talking about this so much? That's actually a huge part of what this passage is about. There is also another end to that spectrum. There's a problem in America and in the world with dwindling birth rates. Bearing children normally... I know that there's infertility. I know there's infertility. Bearing children normally is one of the key aspects of marriage. There is more to marriage than that, but normally there is not less. There should not be less. Christians should be fruitful and multiply. We say, well, that's, that's the Old Testament. And so the New Testament, when it says be fruitful and multiply, that means now it means the Great Commission. It means we go out and we multiply disciples. That back then it meant babies, now it means disciples. Okay, all right, Christians, have babies. 
have babies, Christians. This is the first command of God for a Christian husband and wife, a Christian family to be fruitful and multiply. Again, why in the world am I talking about this so much? Because we love the Bible and because we want to be faithful to the text. And this is an envelope. This is an envelope. Verse 7 of Genesis 9, would you look at it? You be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Verse 1, this envelops the whole paragraph. Verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. You see verse 1 and verse 7, he says the same thing. And it's after the flood and it's like a new creation. And he says the same thing that he said at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. The fear of you, verse 2, and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, and to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I have given you the green plants, now you can, now you can eat steak. I just don't want you to eat a squirrel when it's not dead. Don't eat any animal with the lifeblood still in it. Don't eat a live animal. But now you can eat everything. You shall not eat flesh with its life, verse 4, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, for your lifeblood, I will require, I will require a reckoning. Why? Why? Because to intentionally commit homicide, listen, against another human being is to cut against the preciousness of life. It's to cut against the preciousness of life. He starts out immediately with this whole new world. It's a whole new world. A whole new world. And he says, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. He says, life is precious. Life is so precious that if a man kills another man, then I will require his life. Listen to me. God says, I will require the murderer's life, but I will not take it directly. That's very important. God says, life is so precious. Listen to me, because we're made in the image of God. Nothing else, nothing else in all of creation is like man, male and female. Male and female alone are unique in God's creation, mankind. And God says, they represent me. They image me. They are a picture of me. Listen, if you kill them, if you come against them with intentional homicide, you are doing something against me. So I will require your life, your life murderer, but I will not directly take out your life. God says it is through the fellow man. Did you notice that? Capital punishment does not happen directly by God. It happens through human government and never through personal vengeance. And it should happen carefully. It should happen quickly because it should be a deterrent but it should happen carefully and only with the appropriate witnesses. And it should never be personal. I wish I had more time to take you through verses 8 through 17, but let me just say this. Look at 8 through 17 just so that you at least know the context. The flood is over. And 8 through 17 is that God establishes his covenant with Noah well, not just with Noah, but with the earth. And what's the sign? It's the sign of it's 
same sign of American Pride Month. Right? And so I thought this was helpful. And I quote here from Wilson. Not our Wilson. Another Wilson. Last name Wilson. Listen to this. Listen. Genesis 9, 8 through 17 is about the sign of the covenant, which is the rainbow. Most of us are aware of the high-handedness that was involved in the choice of the rainbow as the flag of the sexual revolution. To make the rainbow represent every manner of sexual deviance and perversion is the very definition of effrontery. Effrontery, you know, like, stick it in your face, God. In the great flood, God had judged the entire world for her great wickedness. And in his mercy, he promised afterward that he would not use that particular form of judgment again. I'm never going to do this again. As a surety of his promise, he gave us the glorious sign of the rainbow. So then, to take that seal of extended grace and forgiveness and turn it into the logo and brand for ongoing sin and rebellion against him is about the most churlish and spiritually stupid thing you could think up to do. That was a challenge that our generation decided to accept. What were Those are helpful words. That was a challenge that our generation decided to accept. Oh yeah, let's take God's rainbow, a sign of the covenant, after he had judged the world for perversion and wickedness, and then he purges and he starts anew with a new Adam, Noah, who prefigures the last Adam, Jesus Christ, and then we say in this generation, in the 21st century, oh yeah, let's take the rainbow for a pride month. We want to turn it into pride summer, pride year. And God have mercy on us. God have mercy on us. Number one, capital punishment. Let's pay attention not first to our feelings, but to the word of the Lord. Number two, Genesis chapter 9. Not just those two important verses, very important as they are, verses 5 and 6, but the whole thing. And we pointed out the envelope. Verses 1 and 7, you be fruitful and multiply. By the way, you can find that at the end of chapter 8. You can find that in chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Finally, and before we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, from Genesis 9 to the New Testament and the Gospel. And Jesus, I need you to turn to one place. I need you to turn to one place, Romans 13. I need you to turn to Romans 13 or or listen carefully. I do this intentionally because I only wanted you to have to turn to one place and not to make you work too hard. I'm going to read Romans 13 in a second. Listen to Matthew 5:38. Just listen. You can mark it down in your head or mark it down on your notes, whatever. There are, of course, even among Christians, there are, of course, objections to the death penalty, even among Christians. Absolutely there are. Maybe it's pretty obvious by now. I, I don't think according to Scripture, not according, but according to, I don't think they hold water. 
Here's one from the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in Romans 13 in just a second. Here's one from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 38. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He's dealing with personal vengeance. Personal vengeance is different than letting God's God-ordained government deal with things. Does the God-ordained government always deal with things in the way they should? No. If we have COVID again, and it's very obvious that the policies put in place by the government are not helpful, there are times clearly in the Bible when you do not follow the government because you follow the Lord. What I'm trying to say is the Sermon on the Mount and other passages like Jesus telling Peter later on, Peter, put away your sword. That's personal vengeance. That's also teaching that the kingdom of God does not come by our waging warfare. By the way, he also did not tell Peter to get rid of his sword. He didn't tell Peter to get rid of his sword. He said, put away your sword. But the point is, God in the Old Testament and the New Testament God, I would say, is clearly pro-capital punishment because it's in the New Testament and not just the Old Testament. And if it's in one place, that's enough because it's the Word of God. And it all comes back. It all comes back to this. It all comes back to this. That man made me mad. No, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can forgive a man. By the way, capital punishment, listen to me, is not the end. Some people say, well, that's the end of their life. Yes and no. A murderer or someone who, who commits abortion, those will be the same thing, right? They can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ and a person on death row can repent of their sins and spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ because of the gospel, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. People say, well, capital punishment, we can't do it. It's the end of life. It's what God says because God says, Male and female, made in my image, you, you, dear friend, are dealing with me if you commit intentional homicide. God says, you're dealing with me. Your life will be required of you. But all sinners, all sinners can repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is in the New Testament as well. Let me show you this and then we're done. Romans 13 verse 4. Romans 13, verse 4. He's talking about the government. It's instituted by God. The governing authorities are instituted by God. Romans 13, 4. For He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for He does not bear the sword in vain. For look, look, for He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It's just God, God, God. This is all from God. And verse 4 is key for several reasons because one of them is that it says He does not bear the sword in vain. You know what that means in the context of the whole Bible, pretty much? It means He doesn't have the authority to take somebody's life in vain. You study that and that's what it means in the New Testament. He does not bear the sword in vain. Be afraid if you do wrong because God, through human authorities, can take your life. 